This is Reverend Kirk Lawton, minister at Ocean Lakes Family Campground, and this is our podcast. Our prayer is that this message may enrich your life as you find God especially meaningful to you. Thank you for worshiping with us. A number of years ago, way back in 1965 actually, a skeptic by the name of Hugh Schoenfield published a book which he entitled The Passover Plot. In this book, the author tries to undermine the basic facts of our faith concerning Jesus Christ, offering his own theories about what happened around the death of Jesus. This man assumes that Jesus plotted with Joseph of Arimathea and other unnamed conspirators, and the plot called for Jesus to receive a drug that would make him appear to be dead. And then after Jesus Uh, after Joseph helped him get out of the tomb, Jesus then would appear to his followers as one who was risen from the dead. According to Schoenfield, this sponge filled with vinegar, recorded in Mark 15, verse 36, contained that drug. However, the author of this book says that the plot failed and the soldier's spear mortally wounded Jesus. He lived long enough to talk with Joseph but then he died in the tomb on Saturday. Schoenfeld goes on in his book to suggest a lot of other fanciful ideas which he thinks would explain away the truths about the miraculous resurrection of our Lord. Since that book was published, there's been other expressions seeking to do the same thing. The the Da Vinci Code has come out a number of years ago also. Now, while most of us here today and probably others listening by podcast would probably scoff at any such bold denial of the faith as I've just described, yet there are increasing numbers of people who arrive at about the same conclusion, or at least they're no more truly Christians, although they don't go about spreading their views as openly as an outspoken believer may do. For example, sit with with me in my office and listen as I talk with a young couple. They're planning to get married. They may be members of some church somewhere. I ask that couple what it means for them to be a Christian. What basis do you have for feeling that you are a Christian, I may ask. What is your personal relationship with Jesus Christ? After sharing with them my own experience, how I came to know Jesus, I will listen to see what they have to say. Would it surprise you to know that the vast majority of people, not only young people, but middle-aged and older, majority have no clear-cut concept of what it means to be a Christian? You might ask the average person with whom you work, what assurance do you have that when you die, you'll go to heaven? Chances are likely that you'll get answers such as, well, I'm really not so sure. I hope I haven't done any bad things that God won't let me in. Or I'm trying to do the best I can so that I can get to heaven. Or some would say, I know I'm not as bad as a lot of people I know. What about many people of no particular persuasion who say that they believe in God but not in Jesus Christ? Many of these people even profess to believe in the God of love about whom Jesus taught. 
but they cannot bring themselves to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. They believe that Jesus was a good man and a wise teacher, but not the Son of God. All these people I've just described may be quite moral, very decent in their way of living, but as far as the New Testament teaching is concerned, these are not at all what we would call Christians. They're not saved. Good-natured, personable, honest, likable, maybe all these things, but spiritually they are lost. The crucial matter we're looking at this morning is the question, what about Jesus Christ? Can we really believe what the New Testament says about Him? Not only can we give an intellectual argument to some ideas about a man, but more importantly, can we give ourselves to Him in a personal relationship, which is the basis for all that we think and do and say and are? In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he speaks about Jesus saying that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's 2 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 14. Well, let's just suppose for thinking purposes that the New Testament is wrong in what it tells us about Jesus Christ. Let's examine the charge that some make, saying that the New Testament does not accurately represent what Jesus said and did, but rather what the church later wrote that he said and did. Many New Testament scholars point out that there were at least a hundred years between Jesus' resurrection and the writing down of the Gospels. During those years, the life and teachings about Jesus were told and retold by word of mouth. It was during this period that some critics claim that the church distorted the true facts about Jesus and his teaching. William Hordern puts this matter quite vividly when he says, suppose that it became evident that Jesus did not bless little children, but kick them out of his way. He did not forgive his enemies, but curse them. Suppose he did not chase the money changers out of the temple, but took over one of their tables to make money for himself. If God became man in this child-kicking, enemy-cursing, money-grabber, then we would have to confess that God is radically different from what Christians have proclaimed Him to be. So I asked this morning, how reasonable is it to assume that there's a distortion of what the New Testament says about Jesus? First, let's look at the idea that people intentionally twisted the truth about Jesus. The people who wrote the New Testament were people who strongly believed in truth and integrity, so much so that many of them were willing to die for what they believed. Now, would such people deliberately distort the truth? Would they build a system of faith on a deliberate lie? Would they then die for it? How do we know for sure that, that Lincoln's Gettysburg, Gettysburg Address is accurate? Maybe it was just made up some years ago. No, we remember that address not only because it speaks to certain needs of the American people, but also because we believe that it was not later created to meet those needs. When we think about the possibility of an unintentional distortion of the truth in the New Testament, we might use another key document uh, of the American Revolution as an example. 
Suppose someone were to charge that the Declaration of Independence is not historically accurate. Let's say it was written after the war in an attempt to portray our ancestors as men of courageous commitment to human freedom. We could give several examples why that line of thinking, thinking would be obviously wrong. First, the Declaration of Independence fits the events of 1776 as we know it from other sources. It is in keeping with feelings that were present back then, feelings which caused a severing of political ties with Great Britain. Second, we know what we know about the early leaders of our nation makes it very hard for us to think that they would found our nation upon a lie. Third, what we know of American history since 1776 is consistent with the commitment to human freedom as was stated in the Declaration of Independence. Now, let's make the application of these three things I've just said to the New Testament. First, the New Testament writing fits the events that happened in the first century. There are sources other than the Bible which agree with the descriptions of people and events as recorded in the Scripture. Second, what we know of the early Christians would make it very difficult for us to believe that they founded the way of truth upon a lie, either intentionally or unintentionally. And third, there is a consistency at many points between those origins of our faith as set forth in the New Testament and the events of history since New Testament days. Of course, we must admit that the New Testament does not set out to record the same kind of history as do the records of the American Revolution. For example, the Gospels tell us of miraculous events such as the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Over the years, there have been a lot of theories, and I would underline that word theories, set forth in an attempt to explain away the Christian faith. Uh, one of these uh, theories I mentioned at the beginning of this message a little few minutes ago. Some of the false theories, uh, let me give you just a few of them. There's one called the swoon theory. This is the view that Christ never actually died on the cross, but he just swooned or had an extended time of unconsciousness after which he revived. He was sort of in a coma or a faint. There's another theory that's called the theft theory. This is the view that religious authorities of that day paid or bribed the soldiers to tell a lie. They say his body was stolen. The hallucination theory is the third one, the view that the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus were just supposed appearances. What really happened was the people all had hallucinations, many as 400 of them at one time. Another one is what's called the wrong tomb theory. This view says that the women and then everybody else went to the wrong tomb that Easter morning and they found it empty. And I'm sure there must be many other attempts to try to explain away the truth of the New Testament. People today come up with what they think is novel, scholarly, clever, new. But some of these ideas I've just named were set forth centuries ago 
then dug up in later years, although they were killed back when they were first presented. You like to read in detail some of these ideas. Let me refer you to a very excellent book by Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's an older book, but he has about 30 pages that refute these foolish heresies. Now, all I've said this morning about whether or not we can believe what the New Testament says about Jesus is, in one sense, missing the mark. It is in terms of intellectual argument, trying to get somebody to come over and agree that the record of the New Testament is reliable. But I think there's a deeper question which must be answered. Josh McDowell tells about a student in a New England university who said he had an intellectual problem with Christianity. And just as uh, he could not accept Christ as his Savior, he just couldn't do that. He was asked, why can't you believe? The student answered, the New Testament is not reliable. Then Josh McDowell said, if I prove to you that the New Testament is one of the most reliable pieces of literature of antiquity, will you believe? Quickly came the student's reply, no. Well, then said Josh, you don't have a problem with your mind. You have a problem with your will. The same person said Josh, told about counseling with a student who said she was fed up with Christianity because she believed it was not historical. There was just nothing to it, factually. This girl had convinced everybody that she had searched, she had found profound intellectual problems as a result of her university studies. One person after another would try to persuade her intellectually and to answer her many accusations. But when she finally talked with this minister, he listened to her very attentively, and then he asked several questions. Within 30 minutes, she admitted she had fooled everybody and that she had developed these intellectual doubts in order to excuse her immoral behavior. And so, you see, it all boils down not to whether or not we can ultimately accept this or that intellectually, but rather whether or not we choose to make that commitment of life which is called for by Jesus. One of the main factors in the conversion of the Watergate hatchet man, you remember when back in the Nixon administration, a fellow named Chuck Colson, his name was well known back in those days. According to his own testimony, uh, his, a book by C.S. Lewis entitled Mere Christianity, was a turning point in his life. In that book, Lewis, who was once an agnostic, had this to say, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying that, re that really foolish thing that people also often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis said, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You have to make your choice. Either this man, Jesus, was and is the Son of God 
or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon. Or you can fall down at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being only a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. What have you done with Jesus in your life? Do you belong to him? Does he belong to you? It's not so much a question of someone's being able to out-argue another one on the fundamentals of our faith. It's rather a much more down-to-earth consideration. Are you willing to give up your right to yourself so that God, through Jesus Christ, can make of you what you can never accomplish alone? John Bunyan's classic allegory of the Christian life called Pilgrim's Progress has stood the test of time, and now it has come back again in the form of a movie I've, I've heard. In this marvelous story, as Christian, a character in the book, got ready to begin his journey to the celestial city, he asked for directions from a companion whose name was Evangelist. As he pointed with his finger over a very wide field, Evangelist said to Christian, Do you see the gate over there? But the Christian said, No. Then do you see that shining light? The Christian replied, I think I do. Some people wait for a clear view of everything before they're willing to embark on the path of faith. But Bunyan knew better. Christian thought he could see the light and he started toward it. He met many problems and difficulties on his pilgrimage, but he found increasing light as he went along. So may it be with us. When we know that Jesus is real, we can believe what the New Testament says about him. Heavenly Father, we do believe. Help thou our unbelief, we would pray. Give us the willingness to commit ourselves, our lives, our all to you. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen.